I could have gone and made, you know, a game or an app that people use for, you know, five minutes a day, right? Um, and they have, you know, millions of users and they all play this game for five minutes. That's great, right? That's actually a lot of value. Five million user minutes of happiness a day is pretty neat, right? But we actually have a very different kind of opportunity, right? So people use Everloft for hours a day, you know, sometimes all day. So you kind of have the opportunity to not just make someone happy for five minutes, but actually make them materially happier at the end of the day, right? Their experience of life is better using a system like ours, right? So I think that's a pretty awesome opportunity. I don't think that comes along that often. I think I'm very lucky to have fallen into it. So I think our ambitions here are pretty big, right? I think you don't often get the chance to change the way work is done in the whole industry. Today on Law Next, a conversation with AJ Shocker, founder and CEO of Everlaw, an e-discovery company whose cloud platform and AI-driven analytics have drawn investments from some of the biggest venture firms in Silicon Valley. This is Bob Ambrogi, and you're listening to Law Next, the podcast that features the innovators and entrepreneurs who are driving what's next in law. Before I get started, let me just take a moment to give a huge thanks to the sponsors who support this program. ShareFile is a secure, easy-to-use collaboration and workflow solution that has helped more than 90,000 customers secure data, share files, and collaborate on documents. With ShareFile for legal, you can eliminate the never-ending speed bumps during client collaboration, giving your clients one tool to onboard, sign retainers, and share requested documents. It can also be easily integrated with popular workplace tools like Google Workspace, Salesforce, QuickBooks, Zapier, and more bringing even more ease to the client experience. To learn more about how ShareFile for Legal can help you keep work flowing, go to sharefile.com. AJ Shocker, thanks uh, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, looking forward to, to talking to you. Um, so you started Everlaw in 2001, I believe, originally founded under the name Easy ESI, and and you you came into this uh, with absolutely no no background in law for the most part, as I understood it. You were a, 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 a PhD computer scientist. So, what? How did you get into this legal industry in the first place? Great question. Uh, so, one minor correction: it was actually 2011. So about ten years later, what did, um, I, did I say two thousand and one? That was just my yeah. speaking. I've I've got two thousand and eleven here written in front of me. So. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. So two thousand and eleven. Uh, you're right. I came in with um, with really just a technical background, um, and um, the impetus was really uh, when I was in grad school in uh, in computer science, getting my PhD. Uh, I ended up being a technical expert for a law firm. Um, on the side, consulting part-time while getting my PhD, helping them with some kind of fairly technical lawsuits. Uh, and that's where I got to see kind of firsthand what the experience was like for lawyers, right? It was something I had no idea about beforehand. Um, you know, kind of seeing how the sausage was made, of course, but also seeing the, the kind of increasing volume of discoverable data they had to deal with, the kind of fear and anxiety they really had around the tooling around that um, in terms of being able to find something important in a limited amount of time and budget. Uh, and the state of the art in the technology at the time, I think, just wasn't particularly advanced uh, compared to, let's say, you know, using Google to search the whole internet in half a second, right? So from my perspective, it was really just looking at the industry, um, looking at the kinds of problems people were facing, um, kind of recognizing that, at least in this space, they're all very technical problems, right? They're not really legal problems, they're technology problems. Uh, and then saying, hey, knowing what I know about computer science, you know, that you could do this better, right? And so that's kind of what got me on this path. 
Well, it's one thing to look at that and, and uh, say, well, that's that's kind of a mess and somebody ought to clean it up. But it's it's another thing to actually get in there and, and start a company. How did how did you go about getting this going in the first place? Um, I actually had done a previous company in a completely different space. Um, uh, computer vision meets soft goods. And so that company um, was coming straight out of grad school, only won the you know Berkeley business plan competition with it. And um, it was kind of this like, crazy story for another day. Uh, but then we ended up selling that company to to another uh, internet firm. And so I worked at that acquiring company for a couple of years uh, to kind of see through the obligation effectively. But then always in the back of the, my, my mind, I had this, you know, kind of experience of, hey, this is a really interesting area that was just for many reasons appealing to me, um, and uh, which I can, I'm happy to get into uh, the specifics of why it was appealing. But then ultimately it was just saying, hey, I want to get, get back on the horse and do this again. So I think maybe having done the other company gave me a little more confidence to do it uh, the second time around, but also just being really excited about an area kind of that was underserved by technology. That's just something that's really appealing to a technologist, right? Well, uh, so, okay, you offered. So why was it appealing to you? I mean, was it just that, that you saw it as being underserved by technology? Uh, there's a couple of reasons. Yeah. So first of all, I guess you could say there's low-hanging fruit, right? So understanding the state-of-the-art computer science, seeing what was actually brought to bear at the time in the industry, there was just a, a, a divergence, right? You could, you could kind of really push forward um, what's possible. So that was very appealing. Uh, a second thing is, remember, you have to kind of imagine my state of mind at the time, which is I'm a, I'm a computer scientist. I can kind of go in any direction at, at once conceivably, right? So why, why would this one be appealing? Well, the, the second reason was that um, the problem is a kind of gloriously deep problem, right? What we basically do is we're a truth-finding machine. We, find, we help people find needles in haystacks, right? Haystacks are huge. You don't know what the needles look like. Um, that is just a fascinating problem in computer science. So there's no silver bullet there, right? You can't just solve this once and for all. You have to bring everything you know to bear to solve it. So everything from great you know, user interfaces to data visualization to artificial intelligence to these collaborative tools. Um, in comparison to you know, another startup where I'm making like a chat app or a marketing tech app or something, the opportunity to really bring a lot of kind of uh, deep technical expertise to bear was really compelling, right? You know, as a nerd, I'm a huge nerd. It was like the kind of problem that I could see myself being interested in and motivated by for a very long time. So that was number two. And I thought that was just a, you just don't often see these problems, right? You know, they're not just out there everywhere. There's the kind of, you, you hit on something and you feel just how deep and rich it is. And I think that's definitely been borne out in my experience since then. Uh, the third thing was just, again, as a, as building a company goes, it was a very simple model, right? There's a lot of tech startups where you have kind of multiple markets, multiple sets of clients, right? You're a, you know, you have a free service for users, but you pay for it by advertising, you know, who's your real master, right? Who are you actually serving? And that's a really messy, complicated question. Uh, in this industry, it's you make a great product and people buy it. And if you make a product and they don't like it, they won't buy it. And I thought that was just an honest way to do business is something that I as an engineer really can understand and get behind. In, in 2011, I mean, the e-discovery industry, uh, in some, at least to me, it seems like the e-discovery industry was one that was almost a little bit more technologically advanced than some other areas of law practice, or at least earlier on. And by, and by 2011, there was there were already some companies doing some pretty sophisticated stuff in the area of uh, you, you know search and review technology for e-discovery. Uh, 
when you looked around the industry at that point and, and you know as you were getting started what did did it seem to you that there was something missing there there's some gap that you could fill in terms of the technology yeah so just to be clear yeah i mean definitely no disrespect to the, all the companies in the space i mean it's a rich uh vibrant ecosystem um with with kind of vendors offering services since you know discovery existed right so there's all kinds of sets of tools out there um, that provide a ton of value, right? So I think the areas that I thought had an opportunity for, for more improvement were, um, one, I think, you know, just speed, right? So we're moving from an on-premises to a cloud kind of uh, environment, um, not just in terms of where the discovery platform will, lives, but where clients' data lives, right? And then that means just the scale of discoverable data is just going through the roof. And I saw that even back then, right? So, you know, in the 90s, it was, well, what's discoverable? Well, what's in your filing cabinet, right? Um, what can we scan, right? Then it was all your Word documents on your file server, right? And then it was every email you sent, and now every attachment. Now every Slack chat and Snapchat you send is discoverable, right? So the ability to make discoverable content has only gotten easier, um, geometrically easier. And so the volume of data is growing hugely. And I think, you know, tools that historically been on-premises had struggled to scale easily for all the kind of clear on-premises reasons. You have to buy and allocate servers and manage them. What do you do when your client comes in with 10x the data? Right? So speed was a big one. Another one was collaboration. Um, I think that's a really big opportunity. Litigation, discovery are just inherently incredibly collaborative uh, endeavors, right? And a lot of the tools I think then and even now, I think a lot of the collaboration happens out of band, right? You're emailing people exported documents as attachments, um, you know, you are finding any which way to talk about your work product. Often it means getting in the same room um, with binders, printouts of documents working together. You know, that's just not how the world has to collaborate, you know, and it becomes infeasible when you're dealing with different geographies in your law firm or in-house and outside counsel co collaborating together. How can we make that better? I think we've really pushed that quite a bit of ways down the road in terms of what that experience is like. Um, you know, of course, there's, you know, artificial intelligence, um, you know, there's like, I would say the industry is just, and I think even we are just scratching the surface in terms of the kind of analyses you can bring to bear to solve this very challenging needle in a haystack problem, right? You mentioned a lot of tools around search and review. Absolutely true, right? But what about when the review has, you know, just way more documents you can look at or in formats you can't really handle by a standard search model, right? What do you do? So the way I think about this is, you know, a lot of, you know, if you just look at the historical development of, of vendors in the space, you know, a lot of them really came out of law, right? right. Whether they're former attorneys or, or, or lit support folks who've started their own vendor, you know, their own companies to build the software. Um, the reality is the problems we're trying to solve here are very deeply technical, right? As I mentioned, you know, big data at scale, artificial intelligence, real-time collaboration. These are really technical problems, right? And so if there's one way to characterize what we do, we are a technology company that's focused on law rather than a legal company that has to build technology to meet their clients' needs. And that just gives us the ability to integrate these things in a much more comprehensive way. So that's the third thing, is not just stopping at discovery, but moving beyond that to all the workflow, all the work product that you create out, out of the documents you found. We have a whole suite of tools around that. And I think that's an area, again, that's been underserved. We'll get back to my interview in just a moment. But first, let's take a break to hear from the sponsors who generously support Law Next. And now, let's continue this week's interview. You know, you talked about the 
uh, sort of need to move from on-premises solutions to cloud solutions in the, in the uh, litigation area, in the discovery area, uh, you know, I think there certainly is probably <laughs> still a perception that, uh, and, and probably a fact more than a perception, that that one provider uh, overall kind of dominates this market, and that's that's relativity. If I'm going to name names, uh-huh. I mean, the relativity, sure. uh, you know, has long been sort of seen as the, as the market leader. Uh, how do you, you know, how do you view the market? I mean, they're, they're you know, I, I heard somebody say something like, you know, this, this is a relativity's house and everybody else is just trying to get a foot in the door. Uh, to what extent are you seeing move away from on-premises toward the cloud for e-discovery? Yeah, well, certainly I agree. I think relativity is absolutely the incumbent. Um, I don't think anyone could really take issue with that. Um, and they have a very comprehensive product for sure. Uh, so first of all, of course, Relativity itself is trying to move to the crowd with Relativity One. Right. right? They've put yeah. in, you know, mi- tens of millions or really hundreds of millions of dollars in development on that product, right? And it's yeah. they're yeah. kind of and trying to find a way really to short circuit where they're putting the emphasis these days. In their yeah, yeah, one. right. And they're really kind of short circuiting their own vendor ecosystem, which is interesting. So I think they see the need, and honestly, that's made our life a lot easier, right? Yeah. When the incumbent is moving to the cloud, that. That is, it's less a competition of whether the cloud makes sense anymore, and it makes it feel like much more of an inevitability, which it really is. And then we get to compete on the merits, which, we're, of course, we're very happy to do. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're absolutely there. I think they're a smart company making the right decision to move to the cloud. Uh, I think also it's a very hard and challenging thing they're trying to do, and I know they know that. Um, so I think, you know, there's an opportunity, of course. You know, many industries, of course, are all in the cloud, and then the competition happens entirely in the cloud. Right, whether you're using G Suite yeah. or Microsoft Office or whatever, these are mature ecosystems all in the cloud, and I think that's an area we're very happy to get to because I think on the technology perspective, what your experience is like in the cloud, I of course think that you know we're second to none, and I think we've seen, of course, you know, our company has grown, of course, on people moving away from these other solutions to ours. Right, this isn't a new greenfield industry. Right, we are right. competing in every deal against an existing technology, and I think we've we've right. had a lot of success exactly in that arena. Yeah. It's tough to do, though. I mean, it's tough to get lawyers to move off of whatever they're using. If you're going to law firms, it's tough to get. This is inertia factor, I would imagine, in 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 pitching to law firms. Yeah, there definitely is. I think you you will see simultaneously a lot of inertia and a lot of discontentment. Right? There's a dissatisfaction with you know with relativity with any existing solution, um, whether it's speed, whether it's ease of use as compared to complexity, right? Whether it's rate of innovation, handling new file types. Um, whatever it might be. And I think so you kind of have both of those together. And so, of course, what we have to do and the way you move people off of any existing solution where there's inertia is provide an improvement that's so substantial, right, that it's easy for them to adopt, right? That's the way you get anyone to adopt technology, right? You don't trick them into using it. You make something that's really compelling. And I think that's just what we're trying to do here. And I think there's a lot of analogies to even the consumer space in terms of how we approach that experience um, for uh, for users. And that's, I think, a, a pretty significant differentiator from the kind of very enterprise-oriented experience that people are used to having in this space. How do you communicate that to lawyers? I mean, as you said, you're a technology company, uh, you know, tackling a, a, a legal problem. And I, I think a lot of lawyers don't necessarily get the technology or maybe don't even want to get the technology. They just want to know, you know, what what yeah. can this do for me? So, uh, you know, if, if you're offering what you're describing as, as, as a better solution, how do you how do you convey that to uh, to legal professionals? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so first of all, of course, right, you know, thinking of us as a technology company in legal space, you mentioned solving a legal problem. Of course, what we're doing is we're solving all the technology problems so that our clients can solve the legal problems, right? The actual things yeah. they really want to do, right? No one wants to be right. a glorified data manager. They want to be thinking about the law, right? So the same way, you know, the analogy I would use there is if you're a doctor and you need to build, you know, an MRI machine, right? Complex piece of technology to help you aid your clients better, right? You wouldn't call up another doctor and say, build me an MRI machine, right? You'd call up engineers who are very good at building these complex pieces of technology. You'd tell them what you need and they'd listen to you and they'd build an MRI machine that's going to meet your needs, right? So that's how I think about what we are in the market. We are very good at technology. We, of course, listen to lawyers all the time about what they need, but we are, we have a completely, you know, I would say a more mature set of tools in terms of being able to build what they need, right? As the engineers of the legal technology, the analogies to the engineers making the MRI system, like you want an engineer building that system, right? You don't want a, a doctor who knows what they want out of it trying to engineer something that complicated. So I think there is, you know, a great opportunity for us to work of course, with everybody to learn what their needs are and then solve their problems with good technology. So how do we convey it to users? I mean, the reality is, like I would say, in, there is um, a pervasive stereotype, maybe not within law, but certainly outside of law, right? That lawyers don't like technology, right? They're a bunch of Luddites, they're slow moving. Um, and I've always resisted that notion uh, pretty strongly. And you know, my best, com most compelling piece of evidence is that every lawyer everywhere immediately adopted smartphones the instant they came out, right? BlackBerry came out, every lawyer had a BlackBerry. iPhone came out, every lawyer got an iPhone or an Android or whatever, right? Yeah. These tools are very sophisticated pieces of technology, but they really clearly help lawyers do a better job at what they do at their profession. And so every lawyer immediately saw that and adopted these things probably earlier than almost any other industry wholesale, right? So that is a testament. You know, lawyers like good technology, and they will absolutely use great technology uh, to help them do better. What they don't like, of course, is, is bad technology, right? So if you give them something good, they'll use it. And so our whole well, goal and they don't like the learning about, curve either. Is the other? I mean, the other part of that. Sure, sure. You know. Yeah, yeah. Of course. When I mean, if like it's good easy technology, to use, they'll use it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Good technology is not just does it provide every bell and whistle, right? It's is it something that you can actually use, right? Is it something that makes sense to you, that's built for how you work, right? That's accessible, let's say, to you. Um, so that's how we think about it, right? When we build our software, it's not just can it do everything that you need it to do, which of course we care a lot about and we go very deep into those complex workflows, but can we do it in such a way that's empowering to you, right? That you understand, that you're able to use rather than being kind of afraid of, right? So the way I think about it again is changing the tenor of the discussion. If you talk to a lot of lawyers or legal uh, lit support professionals, there is a kind of a very negative experience they have with their discovery software, right? It's kind of a necessary evil. Well, I have to use this thing. It's hard. It's messy. I have to use it because I need it to do my job, as opposed to their phones, which they love, right? So we try to think about how to, you know, how to build the product to change the tenor of that discussion so that they view the discovery product, Everlaw, you know, uh, is a different kind of experience. It's something that they love, something that empowers them. And that means absolutely not only making it very deep to meet their needs, but also very accessible. So it's something that they view as a trusted assistant, as an aid, rather than a necessary evil that they have to kind of dig into because they have no other choice. So, so how do you do that? How do you build it in a, in a way that they, they get that? Yeah, well, first, I mean, every every interaction with the platform, if, if, if you ever poke around in it, is built to be both extremely accessible to new users, you know, kind of beautiful and elegant, and also very deep for power users. We have to walk that line. Uh, and so we we just have a very strong bias, you know, towards, as when you think about what technology means, it's not just is the back-end AI algorithm powerful, it's 
is it accessible to users, right? Great design. And I think that's one of the things that comes really into play when you look at smartphones, right? They're not just supercomputers in your pocket. They're incredibly elegant and sophisticated and accessible all at the same time, right? So we actually just build our product to marry those things together. And that requires both a great design and product sense, which I think, again, we are built to create, and great technology married to it right on the back end. I think that's kind of how we've designed our companies to provide that experience. So the answer is not just we do this one thing. It's every aspect of the platform is designed, you know, even from the first screen you see to building, you know, a complex data visualization to have that kind of consumer level look and feel, right? The consumer level experience that, you know, lawyers are people too. They're consumers. You give them that experience, they will use it. So can we do that? Rather than just saying, this is an enterprise product, let's give up on usability. Let's have a 100-hour training course for everybody. We think, how can we make it so you can get what you need out of it in a consumer-accessible way? And that's just the philosophy we have behind the product design. You talked about AI. Uh, and at what point did you see that you know, AI or, or, or machine learning need, needed to be part of this platform? And, and how, how does Everlaw use AI? Oh, yeah, very early on. I mean, I think... It's one of these things where it's an inevitability in the industry. It's a question of how it's going to be used. Um, the volume of data, again, is so large that even maxing out your budget and time, you can't look through every document, right? So how do you figure out which ones to look at, right? You have a million or two million or five million docs in your case. You can only look through a fraction of those. What fraction, right? Um, and that's a hard decision to, ha to have to make, especially because your clients are not very sympathetic if you just say, hey, I didn't get to look at the right doc. Well, you should have, right? So the AI is meant as a prioritization. That's how we think about it. It, is, it works in tandem with users um, to help prioritize where to direct human effort. Uh, and I think that's a really important part of how we work is law is a very subjective domain where there's lots of ambiguity and lots of context. And that's something where people are best at. There's no AI out there in any domain that's kind of good enough to understand the full context of an email or a conversation and the implications of it. Uh, so we don't think of it as replacing people, we think of it as augmenting them, right? You show us what's interesting, we build an AI around what you think is interesting, we go do the legwork to prioritize the other, you know, 99% of the documents you haven't looked at and help you spend your time most wisely. So that's how we think about it, as a kind of a partner um, in the efforts to kind of understand your corpus. Um, so how do we do that? Well, that's a hard thing, right? So then you have to think about more substantial questions, right? Well, is it just a very simple tool where all it does is give you a rank prioritization? Well, that's hard for lawyers to get behind, right? If they don't know how well the system is doing, how can they trust it? There's a lot of skepticism, as there should be. So we have a tool, and this is something that's hard to describe. Uh, it's much easier to show in, let's say, a screenshot, but that is not only very accessible, meaning that it kind of gives you this prioritization, but it's also very defensible. It gives you a ton of transparency about how well the AI is doing, where it's doing really well, and where it's not doing well. And as a user, you can dive into those representative documents and understand, do I have faith in the system? Uh, and if so, I'm happy to use it. And if not, you know, there's all kinds of ways to get it to improve its performance. But we want to make sure that that transparency is there because ultimately transparency and vulnerability are what build trust. And so we built the AI so that it's very clear about not just what it's recommending, but also how well it's performing. And there's there are actually pretty interesting statistical ways to do that so that users can, you know, basically bring it to bear in a way that they have confidence behind it. And ultimately, that is the only way you're going to get any legal team to use an AI is when they have confidence in the results. I mean, it sometimes seems to me that AI, that uh, e-discovery has been kind of the proof of the efficacy of AI 
in, in the legal industry more broadly. I mean, uh, you know, a, AI machine learning has worked pretty well uh, in e-discovery. Oh, yeah. and, and there have been, uh, uh, you know, a number of studies by people such as Maura Grossman that have documented the effectiveness of AI, even to the extent of suggesting that, you know, in some cases it, it can do a better job than humans at, at sort of sorting out what's 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 relevant and, and what's not and, and and do it certainly uh, much more quickly and at lower cost than, than humans can do it. Um, yeah, I, don't know, I, have a, I have a question there, but I mean, it, it, it's it, it's just sort of seems that, uh, uh, you know, as I say, it's, it's been sort of the proof of concept for that's extended AI into, you know, uh, M&A contract review in, in other areas where it's been more broadly accepted. Absolutely. I think it's a, it's a fantastic success story for AI. Um, just to be clear, even in those studies, of course, all those studies rely on human input to start off the process. Now, they're using continuous active learning, which, of course, we do as well, the kind of state-of-the-art technologies. But they're all trained by humans when you're determining responsiveness for a particular matter. So there is that kind of coordination and collaboration between the, the machine and the human that I think is essential to kind of how you think about predictive coding that I think we believe is essential to kind of moving it forward. Now, there's other analyses that you can do that don't require any human training, and we're working on some of those as well. But ultimately, the whole package is one of one in which um, the greatest successes are the ones where you're kind of marrying that human ability to deal with ambiguity and context um, with the c computer's ability to scale kind of dimensionally and across many documents at once to kind of extrapolate from human intelligence. So right. I think that's why it's such a great example of this right is that augmentation as, as you, yeah, as you exactly. described it before or uh, i've heard people refer to it as a, a robotic exoskeleton for, for lawyers <laughs> the mech warrior for lawyers yeah that'd yeah, be awesome exactly how's that um so uh, you've um received uh some funding from some uh, pretty big name uh silicon Valley firms. You you started in two two thousand. Well, not started. You were had some prior funding. You got a Series A round in two thousand and sixteen. Uh, Eight point one million, led by uh, Andreas and Horowitz. Uh, you uh, then had a a, a subsequent round, uh, twenty five million dollars Series B, in just last year uh, with uh, Menlo Ventures, uh, one of the a long established. Uh, uh, venture capital firm in Silicon Valley, uh, and also uh, Andreas and Horowitz uh, continuing to participate in that. I, it seemed to me, I couldn't tell for sure, but it looked to me like like you might have been uh, Andreas and Horowitz's uh, first venture into legal, uh, or certainly one of their first venture into legal. They've, they've put some money into legal companies since then. But I mean, what do you think it is that these uh, Silicon Valley firms saw in Everlaw that that made you stand out from some of the others out in this in, in the e-discovery field. Yeah, my understanding is that we were Andreessen Horowitz's uh, first legal tech investment, um, which, to their credit, of course, is a big kind of you know leap of faith on their side. Uh, you know, a lot of venture capitalists, of course, are you know invest in what they know, right and what they know is enterprise and consumer and a whole bunch of other verticals, but rarely law, right? So that makes it hard for a legal tech company to go say, hey, well, what about us? And I think um, Andreessen Horowitz, their, their thesis, you know, of software eating the world, that's kind of their famous, famous line that, you know, in every industry and in every vertical, software is going to become the foundation for the kind of the next generation of work, right? 
makes it, I think, makes us or legal tech in general more appealing to them because they understand this is a vertical where ultimately where everything's going to be running on software, right? Not just discovery, but every post-discovery litigation move, if you know, certainly with every law. Um, but I think, you know, again, with any technology in the future is going to be running on kind of a unified layer of software. So they understood that. Um, I don't know that we were competing against other e-discovery platforms at the time. I think, you know, us coming in again with a very strong technology bench, you know, my background as a computer scientist, us, the way we've built the company to solve the hardest tech problems in the space, I think was a differentiator. Again, you know, maybe in contrast to some of the other vendors in the space that come from a more traditional legal background. I will say, of course, when we're pitching to them, we're not competing against legal tech. We're competing against every other startup, in, you know, trying to get right. money. And I think, you know, Andreessen, their, their stats were, I think they hear about two to 3,000 pitches a year and they invest in about 20, right? So for us, it's how do you get to that 20? Um, and I think, to their credit, you know, when we talk about our space, clearly, you know, we have a, a very compelling product, I think. Uh, and I think what a lot of VCs see is, um, man, you know, it's a conservative buyer, a fragmented market, you know, that's a little scary, right? And I think what Andreessen Horowitz saw, uh, much to their credit, definitely is, you know, conservative buyer, fragmented market, this is a very interesting opportunity, right? And so I think that was something that got them going. Um, our board member who joined, Steven Sanofsky, was, is a long, was at Microsoft for a very long time. He was a president of Windows, ran Office. So he was involved in Microsoft's antitrust days, and he saw he knew what Discovery was like, and so he knew the opportunity for improvement there. And I think that was um, a very compelling thing for someone to have lived through that, to have looked at the boxes of documents and OCR scans and the kind of last generation software, and know, hey, we, you know, again, you can do better here. So I think that was their perspective was seeing that opportunity. What have those investments meant for you as a company? Uh, oh, yeah, a ton, right? I mean, so, you know, the Menlo investment, of course, was a little further along, right? We had a lot yep. of traction. We were growing very quickly. Luckily, uh, they already knew a little bit about us. They'd done their homework. And, you know, legal tech wasn't as foreign, you know, even a couple years later as it was in 2016. So that was another wonderful conversation we had with them. We aligned in instantly over the vision and where we were going. Uh, the investments mean a lot of things, right? So um, we are a very long-term oriented company in general. That's actually a core company philosophy internally, you know, make decisions for long-term outcomes, right? Legal is, it's a race as is with any startup, you know, but it's a marathon, not a sprint, right? So your reputation matters, the quality of your service, your experience, all those things matter. Um, and, it, you know, in contrast, I think to, you know, you can imagine many startups that try to move as rapidly as possible, right? Well, this is an industry where we think uh, moving really rapidly can be to your detriment, right? Whether it's a security breach, um, or you know, just the stakes are very high. So the investment lets us, of course, put a lot of resources towards building out a system to succeed in the long term, right? Hiring a head of revenue in terms of product and development, of course, and also security and compliance, right? And, and naturally, building out our go-to-market team, sales and marketing, business development. So all of the above. Um, we also just opened a UK office, uh, so in London, and that's been a, you know, just, just last month. So that's been a, a really interesting experience for us. I'm really excited about that. We've seen a lot of, of kind of interest on that side. Um, yeah, and also just making longer term bets in terms of product, in terms of um, just how we build the company out. So it wasn't you yeah. know for one particular thing. It was do more of what we've done at a larger scale. Yeah. And what, what's been the growth trajectory during that that time? I mean, where where are you in in terms of revenue and employees and? Uh, 
Yeah, well, very good, <laughs> I would say. Uh, you know, we're over 100 employees. Um, we have uh, hundreds and hundreds of customers. Um, we are dealing with, uh, of course, you know, law firms, um, primarily mid and large size law firms. I think that's a bread and butter, um, though we do have some smaller ones, but also corporations, uh, mid and up to very, very large corporations, uh, governments, uh, tons of penetration at the state level, but also municipal level now and uh, federal as well. Uh, we're moving into federal. Uh, so that's pretty exciting for us. So just mm -hmm. kind of an all of the above approach. Um, I think the platform has shown its versatility in kind of meeting this disparate set of needs. And we're kind of excited to just, you know, go to market. Um, yeah. I read of, a, either on your website or in some press materials or something that if, if 50, the attorney generals of all 50 states are your customers. Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah. We have, we have users at all 50 states. We actually have, um, sorry. Is that a market the, that you've gone after in particular or, or how did that come to be? Uh, yeah, it is. Um, I mean, they're great, great clients. They have very complex needs, complex cases. Um, we actually have uh, a contract with the National Association of Attorneys General, um, in addition to individual AGs, to serve an umbrella contract across all of them. Um, so that's really exciting. Uh, uh, but yeah, so we have a lot of kind of a lot of use at that level. Uh, it's pretty neat. Um, the uh, who. <laughs> You, you mentioned law firms, you mentioned corporations. Is that changing at all in terms of who you're selling to? And I guess by that, I mean, uh, are, are corporations are corporations as customers increasing or decreasing or, or, or how is that happening? I mean, I'm hearing a lot that, that, that corporations, you know, have over the last few years started to be much more active in making these kinds of decisions and in fact, and even kind of directing these kinds of decisions for their outside firms in terms of the litigation software they're using or e-discovery uh, platforms that they're using. Uh, are, are you seeing any of that from your perspective? Oh yeah, definitely increasing. Uh, the funny thing of course, is if you talk to law firms, they say, you know, our, excuse me, our big law firm clients, well, they're the one, oh, sorry, if you talk to big law firms, they say our big corporate clients are the ones dictating what software to use. And if you go to the, the corporate clients, they say, well, our big law firm <laughs> yeah. uh, outside counsel are the ones dictating what software to use. Uh, but the reality is it is an interplay. Uh, you know, the bigger the entity, the more pull they have, right? So we sell to both sides. And I think that's been pretty successful. Um, for Certainly for the bigger corporate legal departments, they have their own operations, right? I mean, they have a whole legal team. They're doing investigations at a large scale. They're doing, you know, pre-litigation, um, even coordinating with their outside counsel during litigation. And so, you know, Everlaw is a great fit for them because we already kind of plug into their technologies. We, we operate at a scale and sophistication that they very much understand. Another really big thing for us is that from a security perspective, I think we are, I would say, an industry leader in terms of the kind of comp comprehensiveness of the security model that we have um, and security certifications that we have. And so for large corporations, that's very reassuring. You know, we go through these monster security audits, really the harder, the better for us. That's a great market differentiator for us. Uh, and corporations, when we come out the other end, are, you know, comfortable using us in a way that typically they're not able to really get from other legal vendors. Um, so there's, there's kind of a lot of uh, alignment in terms of what we offer uh, and what corporations need. What are your plans for your product and your company over the next couple of years? I mean, do, are, do you have changes that you want to make to the platform? Uh, are you looking, I know you mentioned the UK, I know you're in some other, I think you, you're in Australia, some other uh, mm -hmm. uh, overseas markets from the United States. Uh, how, do you, how do you look to grow the 
platform and how do you look to grow the, the company? Yeah, great question. So yeah, we are, we're in the UK. We're also in EU, we're in, in Frankfurt, we're in Canada, uh, we're in Australia. Um, certainly the product I feel, I mean, our roadmap is, is pretty extensive. Um, there's a lot to grow. There's a lot more pieces to connect, you know, that end to end experience, um, of running a whole litigation and Everlaw, I think is going to be a reality, you know, in the, it already is. We, I think we've gotten pretty far. We're going to plug in some extra pieces there to make it completely seamless. Right. So not which, just, which the, part of the process do you start? Do you start with, with, with collection and go forward? We start or? one step after collection, right? So we start with ingestion and processing. So wherever okay. your data is, if you've got a handle on it, we'll take it wholesale from there, whatever the format it is, whether it's, you know, an EO one forensic disk images or Slack chats, right? We'll get it in there. Um, and we have direct connections to cloud sources too. So collections as a thing, is I think over time going to decrease as corporate right. as entities go to the cloud more, right? So it's a direct connection. So from there, yeah. all the way through to kind of you know case prep, work product creation kind of stuff. So you know the, co the conventional discovery components of having you know uh, IT folks getting data in and lit support and paralegal and review teams doing it all very much in there, and then going beyond that to store what we call story building, right? Partners at law firms. Um, taking the work product and a senior associate, taking that work product, preparing for a deposition, creating a motion or brief with evidence in Everlaw is something you can do right now. So going further there to fill out even more uh, tools in that regard, um, more core discovery tools, of course, more data visualizations, more sophisticated communications analyses, more data types to handle, uh, more and robust artificial intelligence tools um, to augment our predictive coding tool. We have a 20 item AI roadmap there. Um, so all these things, you know, collaborative tools, as I mentioned, um, organizational tools for, you know, we have clients that have, you know, 50 or 100 plus cases on Everlaw, right? So how do you manage information across all those matters? We have a, you know, an organizational administration tool now we're going to be building out on that to give you better cross-matter intelligence. So yeah, many, many things in the product side. Uh, and then, of course, is serving all of these different roles better, right? You know, so I mentioned just a handful there, right? IT. Paralegals, lit support, reviewers, associates, partners, you know, in-house counsel, technical experts, all these folks are living in this rich ecosystem. So making sure that we go deep on each of those as well, right? Not just a superficial reading, right, of the minimum it takes to go from end to end, but the, you know, how much depth can we provide to each so that we can handle their workflows, right? And ease that transition from their kind of entrenched processes now, a lot of it manual, into something kind of the new world with Everlaw. Um, doing a lot of that uh, for them to make sure that they can focus again on the legal problems rather than the technical problems. AJ, last month, the uh, e-discovery company Catalyst was acquired by OpenText for $75 million. Uh, what's, do you have, do you have an end game uh, in mind for uh, your company? Uh, where do you see uh, the long-term future? Yeah, great question. I really don't actually, it's kind of interesting. Um, we kind of, you know, in our, in my mind, right? Okay, so to, to step back a second, you know, getting back to that early question of, you know, what what kind of startup should I get into? What area should I get into? You can imagine, um, you know, building something completely out of legal tech. I could have gone and made, you know, a game or an app that people use for, you know, five minutes a day, right? Um, and they have, you know, millions of users and they all play this game for five minutes. That's great, right? That's actually a lot of value. Five million user minutes of happiness a day is pretty neat, right? But we actually are, have a very different kind of opportunity, right? So people use Everlaw for hours a day, you know, sometimes all day. So you kind of have the opportunity to 
not just make someone happy for five minutes, but actually make them materially happier at the end of the day, right? Their experience of life is better using a system like ours, right? So I think that's a pretty awesome opportunity. I don't think that comes along that often. I think I'm very lucky to have fallen into it. So I think our ambitions here are pretty big, right? I think you don't often get the chance to change the way work is done in the whole industry. So to that point, you know, we want to make a successful business. Uh, I mean that very honestly. I'll tell you, you know, when we raised our Series A round um, in our deck, I didn't have a single slide on, you know, exits. Like what would happen? What's the exit, <laughs> you know, landscape look for us? Not a single slide. And, you know, our investors, they didn't ask, right? Because we're all interested in building this giant kind of the, the company that I think is going to change legal, I hope. And our Series B, similarly, I had a whole slide deck about where we've come and where we're going, but not a single slide on exits, right? You know, who we're going to get acquired by or anything like that. And they didn't ask either because we all, again, are very aligned. Um, the exit here is to build the most successful company we can. And I really mean that. So that's how we think about, you know, long-term outcomes. There's a saying, you know, the best companies are bought, not sold. If you're looking to build a company with a finite time frame where we want to sell, you're going to make short-term decisions, Right. Because it's not your responsibility after some period of time. And we don't think about it that way. It's always our responsibility. So, yeah, the real answer is we want to make this thing um, as transformative as it can be. Do you see some kind of a shakeout coming for the e-discovery market uh, more broadly? Um, I mean, I think there already is a bit of a shakeout. I think, you know, on the services side, we've seen a lot of um, consolidation, right? So you have... Vendors that, you know, have tried to maybe be hybrid tech and service vendors figuring out which way they want to go. Other ones kind of just getting acquired to build these monoliths. I think that's going to continue. Um, you know, in any industry, as, as there, if there's next generations of technology, you, you will see some component of the prior generations getting consolidated. So I think that's going to continue to happen. Um, so I, I would say I don't see it coming. I think it's already happening. I think we're going to see more of it. AJ, I'm going to give you the last word. Anything else that you wanted to uh, mention about uh, Everlaw that we haven't talked about? Oh, of course. If you're listening, you should check it out. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing more. I mean, I think we covered a lot of ground here. I'm always, you know, I'm always happy to talk about these things. I think there's some just I'll just tell you as a technologist who's now come into the industry for almost a decade. It's been just such a pleasure. I can't tell you um, just how rewarding this space is, right? The complexity of the problems, the willingness of users to, to kind of look forward. Again, in contrast to the stereotypes, it's been awesome. So I'm really excited about where we're going and I think where the industry is going. I think, you know, if you're listening, whatever challenges you're facing now, you know, in litigation, I think in five years, it'll be a different world for the better. So I'm kind of excited to help be part of getting everyone there. Well, we're excited to, yeah. to uh, watch where you go from here and follow your progress. Thanks for taking the time to be with us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks. Oh, sorry. Can I add one more thing? I did think go of ahead. something. Is this bad? Yeah, the other thing I'll mention is we do actually have a free program. Um, so if you're listening and you don't, you're not you know, embedded in litigation, we have a free program for journalists, for investigative journalists, uh, for, and for nonprofits. So we have a host of folks using us for free who can't, you know, afford to pay our normal fees, right? Whether it's Electronic Frontier Foundation or Associated Press or the New York Times mentioned this recently as one of the tools they use. So if you do know folks who are in those areas and want a tool that can help them sift through haystacks at no cost to have them reach out to us, uh, I think it's journalists at Everlaw.com and we can figure out a way to, to get Everlaw to work for them. Well, that's great. And in my day job, I represent newspapers. So I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Well, Great. Uh, this is Bob Ambrosio. We've been talking to AJ Shanker, the founder and CEO of Everlaw. A big thanks to our show producer, Ben Ambrosio. 
This is Bob Ambrogi. Thanks to you, all of you, for listening. Uh, until next time, this is Law Next. <laughs>